always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky broadband and lightning fast speeds. See sky.ie for more. On this day, 100 years ago, Irish revolutionary leader Michael Collins was shot dead. Collins' next move was foolhardy and fatal. He left the protection of the Sleeve Mall and moved back down the road. He fired some shots and then, as he was opening the boat to reload... Intelligent, charismatic and a natural leader, Collins's life and death still reverberate a century on, says historian and Irish Times journalist Ronan McGreevy. He's the only Irish revolutionary that's world famous. He's a kind of the Sheikh Guevara of the Irish Revolution. And, as you'll hear, there's still plenty of disagreement as to his legacy. I think it's an outrageous comment uh, made without a scintilla of historical uh, fact. The reality is that no politician in the South cared more about the North than Michael Collins did. We don't know who shot Michael Collins, but we do know that his death launched one of the greatest what-ifs in Irish history. Would this country have been different if Michael Collins had lived? He was a bigger man and a better man than the people who took over Ireland after his death. But that being said, we don't really know what type of a leader he would have become. This is in the news from the Irish Times. Today, the legacy of Michael Collins and what might have been. Ronan, a hundred years ago today, Michael Collins was killed in that ambush at Bail Nablaw, a place that would live in infamy for a century. But can you remind us about the circumstances of his death and the impact it had on the civil war, which was still raging at the time? Well, his death on August the 22nd, 1922, was uh, obviously a tragedy for Irish history. It's it's at the time, really, when the anti-treaty forces were beaten. They had lost all the major towns in Ireland. There was quite a few of them, including Eamon de Valera, actually, who wanted to try and get good peace terms and wanted to get those peace terms of Michael Collins, who they believed not uh, unreasonably that Michael Collins would uh, give them the best terms. There was a few within the organisation who wanted to carry on with a sort of guerrilla campaign uh, that had been successful in the War of Independence, but really had no chance of success because the people weren't with them uh, as they had been in the War of Independence. So um, it comes at a really tragic time. Michael Collins is in Cork basically to see can he get his former comrades to lay down arms, lay down their arms and accept the reality of the situation uh, with a view to uh, constituting the National Army and possibly moving against uh, the North at a later stage? And then, of course, the shot rings out. Do we have any clear idea who fired that shot? Or will that remain one of the greatest, if not the greatest, who done it in 20th century Irish history? Well, we have a name, and this name has been in circulation since the late 1980s. The name is Dennis Sonny O'Neill, who was from Cork. He was a First World War veteran, allegedly a crack shot, and he was fingered in 1990 in a documentary by Colm Connolly called The Shadow of Bail the Blow, which is on YouTube if you want to watch it as the man who actually fired the shot. Now, we're talking about the fog of war here. So we're talking about four men who are still involved in the ambush 
at approximately half past eight on a late summer's evening when twilight was falling. And you also had, um, just prior to that, they had been subjected to uh, really withering uh, machine gun fire from uh, the Schlieve Naman, the armoured car that was with the uh, Michael Collins's entourage. So th- that's the most plausible explanation, I think, that, that Dennis Sonny O'Neill was the man who killed Collins. There's also a second theory. So the most plausible explanation is that Michael Collins was the only fatality in an ambush uh, by the anti-treaty side on a pro-treaty convoy. Um, That's the most plausible explanation. Other explanations is that he was shot by his own side. It may be somebody on his own side who shot him at close range, perhaps uh, Emmett Dalton, who was with him uh, in the car. The trouble is that the reason why these rumours have been flying around for the last 100 years is because of the extraordinary manner in which the provisional government uh, dealt with this killing. They, they had no inquest, they had no inquiry. The autopsy report by, done by Dr. Oliver St. John Gogarty was never released. The person who decided that no inquest would take place was Emmett Dalton, who was with him at uh, Bail Nabla. So we really, really don't know. We don't know where the autopsy report is. Suggestions are that it was burnt in a fire by the uh, outgoing Common and the Gale government in 1932. My own take on this is that, you know, it's Occam's razor, that the most likely uh, explanation is the correct one, which is that he was shot dead by the anti-treaty side. But I don't think we can rule out the prospect that, that perhaps the British Secret Service or even the, the, the provisional government was involved. I suppose it will remain that enduring mystery. But if we could go back a little bit to before he was assassinated, how important a figure was Michael Collins from maybe 1917, 1918 until 1922 when he was killed? Well, if you could just go back to the East Horizon, I mean, he was a, a relatively minor figure in the East Horizon. He was sent to Frangoff with a lot of the other prisoners. That's a prison camp in Wales. And it was there that he started to, to to become a leader of men. By the time he came back to Ireland uh, on Christmas Eve 1916, he was already uh, marked out as a potential leader of Sinn Féin. One of the things that's interesting about Collins and something that I think has never really been examined properly was what an amazingly well-organised person he was. His sister, Hanny, used to talk about how Michael would, even as a child, be very, very organised and that he could put his hand on any paper he needed to do, if he had to do homework or whatever. And that was one of the things, one of the reasons why he rose up so quickly within the ranks of the of the, the Irish nationalist movement was his ability. He never forgot anything. He remembered everything he had to do. So in 1917, he becomes the uh, sort of paymaster of the uh, National Volunteer Fund. He becomes the money man within within the, the Sinn Féin organisation. And again, that's a very powerful role. So in 1919, he becomes the uh, adjutant general of the Irish Volunteers. But more importantly, he takes over uh, intelligence uh, gathering for the Irish Volunteers. This is what he's most famous for doing. 
uh, and it's probably his most enduring legacy. In particular, he recruits three spies that are vital to his uh, network. One is Ned Broy uh, of G Division of the Dublin Metropolitan Police, which is, he's a central character in the Michael Collins movie. The second is David Nelligan, known as the spy in Dublin Castle, who's a senior official in Dublin Castle. And the third one is a lady by the name of Lily Murren, who is a typist in Dublin Castle and who has the names and addresses of all those uh, involved in espionage on the part of the British government in Ireland. At the same time, if that wasn't enough for one man, he becomes the Minister for Finance in the first all government. Again, he's very, very good at this. Uh, Collins is wearing two hats in 1919. He's uh, very prominent in both the government and in the Irish Volunteers, and it's a credit to his superb organisational skills that he's be, that he's able to do both jobs very well. And do we know anything about his political leanings? I mean, could he have been characterised as left-wing or right-wing? Or was he liberal? Was he pluralist? Or did the national question trump everything when it came to the career of Michael Collins? Well, the nationalist question trumped everything. Um, it wasn't uh, any way really different from the sort of philosophy that the, the free state inherited, which was a kind of a degree of self-reliance, put tariffs on trade, you know, put the land to use for the people of Ireland. I mean, it, it's really platitudinous type of stuff, you know. I mean, would he have been any different from, you know, those who took over the state after he died? Well, I actually believe that he would have been. I think he was a bigger man and a better man than the people who took over Ireland after his death. He despised W.T. Cosgrave, basically described him as an overgrown altar boy, which I don't think is a, is a, is a, a, an unfair description. And I don't think, for instance, that he would have implemented uh, the policies of executions which the provisional government implemented in September 1922. But that being said, for all his prestige and fame in that we don't really know what type of a person he would have become or what kind of a leader he would have become. But I suppose isn't it the case that because he died so young, I think he was just 31, he was effectively a blank canvas on which almost any future story could be painted. And with that in mind, do you have any sense or is it possible to say with with any kind of conviction, how different Ireland might have been had he been leading the country instead of maybe Eamon de Valera in the 1930s and 40s? I believe that had Michael Collins lived, the fundamental difference between him and the W.T. Cosgrave era where he mean he was in power from 1922 to 1932 is that Collins would not have accepted partition in the manner in which the provisional government led by W.T. Cosgrave accepted partition. Collins was a signatory to the treaty, but he only signed the treaty on the basis that uh, it was a a sort of a a stepping stone, the famous stepping stone theory, and he was not going to let the North go. Now, he did try uh, to undermine uh, the new Northern Ireland state in May and June 1922 in what was known as the Northern Offensive, but they were... The IRA at that stage was a demoralised uh, faction basically in the north and it faced 70,000 uh, armed men between the 
uh, Ulster Special Constabulary, the B Specials, the RUC and the British Army and so on. So, I mean, it just wasn't feasible to take the North by military means at that stage. But Collins had designs on putting together a national army which would uh, force the British to deal with, with the issue of partition at a later stage. And I'm pretty sure that he would not have accepted uh, as the provisional government did the outcome of the 1925 Boundary Commission, which kept the border in place. But again, I mean, I'm speculating here. It's it's, it's the same with it's the same with with Pierce and Connolly. You know, you can you can you can ascribe any amount of values to them because they they didn't live, so therefore they weren't they weren't tainted by the sort of messy compromises that comes from actually having ruled as, ruling the Irish state. So yeah, I mean, the fact that Michael Collins died young means that we can always. He's a blank canvas on which you can imagine a, an Ireland that was different from the one that, that occurred, that was more prosperous, that wasn't as uh, enthralled to the Catholic Church, that was a more open and tolerant society. But I guess the nature of his death means we'll never know. Coming up, a newly discovered source that casts light on Michael Collins's life during the War of Independence and how today's politicians interpret the history of 100 years ago. Never suffer the buffer again. Always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Whether you're streaming on the sofa, gaming in the bedroom, or swiping in the bathroom. I said swiping. You'll never be without it. Switch your home to 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Availability subject to location requires Sky Broadband Ultrafast. For more info, see sky.ie forward slash speeds. 99.9% reliability based on time our broadband network works across our base. Another thing that differentiates Michael Collins from W.T. Cosgrave or Eamon de Valera or Porrick Pierce or any of these people is that there was a major Hollywood film made about the story of Michael Collins. The fact that the candidate you're being asked to vote for is at this moment rotting in an English jail shouldn't put you off. So wasn't I in one myself till a week ago. How did the Neil Jordan film shape how Michael Collins is viewed today? There's, there's a lot of people are sniffy about that movie because he, he, he took considerable liberties with the truth or with, with the facts of history. But I think, broadly speaking, that film is, is historically correct. I mean, there's, you know, it's it's a Hollywood dramatisation of it, but it's substantially correct. Obviously, uh, Liam Neeson's performance in it was absolutely tremendous. And, and some of the people who are still alive who remember Colin said that he was very good at capturing that energy that that sense of spirit that 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 Michael Collins had and yes I think that it had an impact on on perceptions of of, of Collins ever since then it also has colored a lot of people's perceptions of Eamon de Valera as this devious patsy basically who 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 gets Michael Collins to go to to London uh, to sign a treaty and uh, knowing that de Valera himself would never make the compromises involved They were the best we could get. Any other opinion? And what's more, Dave, you sent me there because you knew they were the best we could get. That is idle speculation. No, it's the truth. Otherwise, you would have gone yourself. I know it doesn't give us the Republic, but it gives us freedom to achieve the Republic peacefully. And surely it's time for peace. What would you know about peace? 
director Neil Jordan uh, nails his uh, colours to the mast when he said, when he quotes De Valera, and this is a disputed quote, nobody's absolutely certain if De Valera ever said this, but De Valera's apparently said in the 1960s that if you look at my historical reputation and that of Michael Collins, there's no doubt that Michael Collins will be be remembered more fondly than, than I will. Now, you recently wrote in the Irish Times that we thought we knew everything that there is to know about Michael Collins and that there was no primary sources left to interrogate. But then his diaries appeared. Can you tell me a little bit about their provenance and why they took so long to surface? Well, these diaries were in the uh, possession of Liam Collins, who is a a nephew of Michael Collins, and they have been for the last basically 100 years until they were handed over to the National Archives in November last year. Basically, I, I think it's important to state that they're not confessional diaries. They're not, you know, they're not him pouring out his heart uh, every evening, sitting at his desk, lamenting all the failures of the day and the pressure he was under. They're more or less uh, a list of appointments that he had. But even that is a very, very interesting. Um, the people he met, the pressure he was under, the very varied work that he did between being Minister for Finance and being and all the toil while being on the run, you know. So you have to look at the, the diaries in that context that he's on a run, the run for a lot of the time. So, for instance, he writes uh, in January and February 1919 that he's on holidays in Britain. I mean, he's not on holidays in Britain. He's actually planning to um, spring him and De Valera from Lincoln Jail. So obviously, why would he write that down? Is he lying to himself? Well, actually, what he's doing is he's he's making sure that if ever he's caught by the British, that if they find these diaries on him, that they, there's nothing incriminating in them. I suppose that what's most important about them is that they're a primary source uh, and there are very, very few primary sources left uh, uh, from Collins that have not been examined at this stage. So they're very interesting in that light. OK. Now, almost as soon as he died, people and political parties were laying claims to his legacy. Are those claims still being staked or is it a settled issue now that his political legacy belongs to Fina Gale, while De Valera's legacy belongs to Fina Fall, and Arthur Griffith, maybe, who founded Sinn Féin, his legacy belongs to that party? Yeah, well, I mean, there's, 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 there's a lot of acclaim in the legacy of Michael Collins going on uh, and Arthur Griffith as well. Um, Fine Gael has produced two pins, uh, commemorative pins for Collins and, and, and Arthur Griffith, and they're clearly laying claim to his legacy. The inconvenient truth is that Fine Gael wasn't formed until 1933. Collins wasn't a member of any political party. He wasn't a member of, of, of the uh, of Common in the Gael either, as far as I, I, I understand it. So it's very dodgy um, ground that Fine Gael is on at the moment. That being said, Fine Gael is derived from the pro-treaty party and obviously Michael Collins was pro-treaty. Yeah, Fianna Fáil also can claim some lineage from Michael Collins, obviously, because Fianna Fáil grew out of the old Sinn Féin party and Michael Collins was a member of the Sinn Féin party, etc. But obviously their their chief lineage comes from Eamon de Valera. The most interesting part of it all is the legacy of Sinn Féin, the party that um, uh, claims um, lineage with the with the old Sinn Féin party. And yet, uh, it's quite interesting that when Arthur Griffith's uh, commemoration came up last week, no, Sinn Féin had nothing to say about it. You say that the Sinn Féin party didn't have much to say about the 
centenary of Arthur Griffith's passing. But Mary Lou MacDonald, the Sinn Féin leader, did have something to say about Michael Collins. And she said that he had turned his back on the ideal of a 32-county Irish Republic in favour of a Dominion free state and a partitioned country. What do you make of that comment? I think it's an outrageous comment uh, made without a scintilla of historical uh, fact. The reality is that no politician in the South cared more about the North than Michael Collins did. Uh, As I said to you earlier, Connor, he had been fomenting unrest in the North to try and destabilise the Northern government. He signed two pacts with James Craig, the Prime Minister of Northern Ireland, to try and alleviate the conditions of, of Catholics in the North. His plan was to end the civil war, to unite the treaty and anti-treaty factions and to begin a campaign in the North to end partition. There's also this idea that he was the dupe of David Lloyd George for having signed the treaty and therefore that he was some way responsible for partition. That's just not true. Partition was already an established fact by the time the Anglo-Irish Treaty uh, negotiations had come into being. Himself and uh, Arthur Griffith accepted the Boundary Commission there was a strong perception at that time that Fermanagh and Tyrone, South Armagh and Derry City would have been um, ceded to the Free State, therefore making Northern Ireland unviable. That was not an unreasonable um, proposition on the part of Collins. I mean, Collins and uh, and Griffith and all the other signatories of the treaty have found, as Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness uh, did when they signed the Good Friday Agreement, that you, you can't overturn. Partition is a reality and you can't overturn it by force. And therefore, I think that it's very disingenuous of her to to taint um, Michael Collins with the view that uh, he turned his back on an, a 32 Irish co- Republic in favour of Dominion Free State and partitionist country. He did not. Now, of course, the centenary of the death of Michael Collins is just one centenary being marked in this decade of centenaries. And there were fears a couple of years back that all these commemorations and events might inflame tensions. But that hasn't really happened, has it? Well, I mean, when you look back on what happened with the with the RIC or the aborted RIC commemoration in 2020. This time, 100 years ago, recruitment was underway to bring in extra forces to support the RIC in suppressing the Republican movement. They were the notorious Black and Tans. A plan to commemorate the RIC announced last week sparked an angry response. We should be up front celebrating the revolutionaries who threw the brutality and the oppression out of the country. Um, so it should be cancelled. I think that unleashed a sort of pent-up kind of anti, anti-British anti feeling in Ireland about the past. Um, I think I also blame Brexit for that, for that perception of the British as being not, you know, people who can be trusted, certainly the British government anyway. And then, of course, you had Michael D. Higgins, uh, President Michael D. Higgins, not going to Armagh for that um, uh, commemoration to mark the centenary in Northern Ireland. So it has got a bit testy, but I will say that I think the commemorations are back on track now in terms of being the Civil War commemorations have been very respectful so far. There's been... Um, you know, I thought the Arthur Griffith was well remembered. And I, I think Michael Collins, the very fact that you have um, the Taoiseach uh, from Fianna Fáil, uh, Michael, or Michal Martin and the Taunished uh, Leo Varadkar, uh, both delivering uh, the uh, orations at, at uh, Bailna Blaw on Sunday is evidence that civil war doesn't matter in contemporary Irish politics. 
and that, you know, the divisions of the civil war are long over. I suppose finally, Ronan, is this the end of it? Now that we've marked the centenary of the assassination of Michael Collins, which was arguably one of the most pivotal moments of the civil war, is that it? No, it's not it. The big commemoration, the big state commemoration will be a commemoration for all those who died in the civil war. Um, it's supposed to take place in September, although I think it's going to be later in the year. Uh, I feel myself that, you know, there was 77 or 81, depending on how you count them, men executed by the Irish Free State in uh, in the civil war. I don't think there's ever been any reckoning by the state itself as to what happened then some of them were uh, killed without uh, even the semblance of a, of a of a military trial so i would hope that that issue will be addressed before the end of the civil war so so the end of the civil war is in uh, the centenary of that is in may next year and that will be the end of of the decades of centenaries but uh, it's very interesting that leo varadkar has suggested that not only is the is it the centenary of the end of the civil war, but it's also the 75th anniversary of uh, the declaration of the Republic of Ireland. So um, he's talking about having a big year next year to mark that. So <laughs> we mightn't be done with commemorations just yet. Well, we'll watch that space. Ronan, as ever, thank you very much for talking to us. That's it for today. This episode of In the News was produced by Declan Conlon. We'll be back on Wednesday.